Uh, this is going to be the second episode where we're covering a John Carpenter film because I look, sound, and act exactly like the sort of person who's really into John Carpenter. That being said, uh, we're covering one of his lesser regarded films, The Fog, which personally I consider to be one of the more underrated ones, and my co-host Cheryl considers it one of his better ones. She thinks it's better than Halloween. So we're going to be taking apart The Fog, delving into its production and the themes and all the stuff I usually do with this sort of thing. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Joining me on this one is my sister Cheryl, as I mentioned already. Hello. Welcome back, Cheryl. Thank you for having me back. And also on this is her husband, Pete, uh, who has done a couple of episodes, but never with her. She's scowling at me, but out of love. (laughs) She kept telling Peter that he was a coward for not joining her because he was afraid of being outshined. He's terrified of my genius comedic timing. I have my own podcast. Yeah, and he records it on the same night that I usually record on my Cheryl episodes. That's probably the real reason. (laughs) I thought you moved to Sundays, you liar. (laughs) But uh, yeah, Pete also saw this one for the first time, even though he host exclusively horror movie podcast. He hadn't gone around to the original Fog yet, and uh, he was unimpressed. Very. Yeah, he, he's here to serve as sort of our um, reigning on our parade counterpoint. <laughs> he's going to be dunking on this while we're going over it. He has an unhealthy aversion to nautical horror. <laughs> Yeah, let's uh, let's start with the plot for this one. On the eve of the centennial for the sleepy coastal town of Antonio Bay, California, paranormal activity begins to unfold. You know, poltergeist stuff, stuff that's cheap to film. That's going to keep coming up. Town priest Father Malone discovers his grandfather's diary behind a piece of crumbling masonry in the church. It reveals that the town's six founders intentionally wrecked a clipper ship trying to establish a leper colony. Antonio Bay was funded from the ship's plunder. Meanwhile, a glow Glowing fog envelops a trawler fishing out at sea. The clipper ship emerges from the fog, and the vengeful spirits of its crew slaughter the three fishermen. As that unfolds, town resident Nick Castle picks up the hitchhiking uh, Elizabeth Solly, who's you know significantly younger than him. As they head to town, all the windows in the truck shatter for no discernible reason. And, you know, Nick was drinking and driving, but that wasn't directly related. Uh, the next morning, local DJ Stevie Wayne is given a piece of driftwood from the haunted clipper ship by her young son, Andy. She takes it to the lighthouse where she conducts her broadcast and sets it by a tape player that's doing, like, promo reels for the station. The driftwood begins to inexplicably seep water, shorting out the tape player. A voice then emerges from the device, swearing vengeance. The phrase six must die appears on the driftwood just before it bursts into flame. The tape player begins functioning normally once Stevie extinguishes the blaze. Nick, concerned about the missing trawler, his buddy Al is on it, heads out there uh, with Elizabeth and discovers the missing boat. Elizabeth stumbles across one of the fishermen with his eyes gouged out. The other two are missing. Uh, One of them is the husband of Kathy Williams, a prominent town figure who is overseeing the centennial festivities. While Elizabeth is alone in the autopsy room, the fisherman's corpse rises from the table and approaches her before collapsing. When Nick and the mortician, Dr. Fibes, respond to Elizabeth's screams, they find that the corpse has carved the number three on the floor. That evening, Stevie gets a call from the local weatherman, Dan, and is informed that another fog bank is heading into town. As they chat, the fog surrounds the weather station, and Dan goes to investigate a strange noise, terrible idea considering the type of movie he's in, and is immediately killed by the ghost as Stevie begs him not to 
you know, do exactly what he's doing. A frantic Stevie begins begging her listeners to rescue her son as the fog rolls into the community and disrupts its telephone and power lines. She has a generator. The fog then gets to Stevie's house. Ghosts kill Mrs. Cobritz, uh, Andy's babysitter. The ghost then turned to Andy, but Nick swoops in and saves him. Stevie advises the townspeople to head to the church. Once inside, Nick, Elizabeth, Andy, Kathy, her assistant Sandy, and Father Malone barricade themselves in a back room as the fog approaches. They then spot a cross made from gold stolen from the clipper ship. Knowing that the ghosts are seeking six lives in lieu of the six founders who killed them, Father Malone heads to the chapel and offers himself to the vengeful spirits. The cross begins to glow as the captain of the ship, uh, Blake, he, he also has these red eye beams. And while that's going on, other ghosts are attacking Stevie in the lighthouse. However... Once the cross triggers a ghostly spectral explosion, the ghosts vanish, the fog recedes, and Stevie climbs to safety. As Father Malone pontificates to himself about why he was spared, the ghosts reappear and decapitate him, fade to black. And that's the film. For the development, John Carpenter derived the story from the 1958 British film The Trollenberg Terror, also known as The Crawling Eye, which is about monsters that hide inside clouds. He was inspired also by a trip he took to Stonehenge with Deborah Hill while they were promoting Assault on Precinct 13. They visited the site and noticed an eerie fog in the distance. The intentional wrecking of a ship and the plunder of its resources to found a town is loosely based on an actual event from the 19th century that happened near Galetta, California. The Fog was produced as part of a two-picture deal that Carpenter had signed with Avco Embassy Pictures. Escape from New York would be the other film. The Fog had a budget of $1 million. Carpenter shot the movie in anamorphic widescreen in the hopes of making it look less cheap than it actually was. Shooting occurred over the course of about 30 days in Point Reyes, uh, Bolinas, and Vernus in Sierra Madre, California. When uh, Carpenter got the rough cut of the film back, uh, Martin Scorsese famously said that if you are satisfied with the rough cut, you're a bad director. But Carpenter was horrified. Also, he felt that its 80-minute running time was far too short. So, among other things, Carpenter added a prologue where Mr. Mackin, played by John Houseman, told ghost stories to children around a campfire. Other scenes were added or reshot in order to make the story more comprehensible. Deborah Hill and the other producers pushed Carpenter to add more gore to the film so they could compete with the emerging slasher genre. And also, apparently, they felt threatened by uh, David Cronenberg, who was emerging on the filmmaking scene at the time. About a third of the fog is composed of reshoots and added footage. And yeah, once again, most of the additions were to make the film a little nastier than it was beforehand because Carpenter was going for a PG rating when he set out. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the cast of this film. First and foremost, we have Adrian Barbeau as Stevie Wayne. Adrian Barbeau. Although Barbeau had uh, appeared in a number of television things, including a film that Carpenter directed. This is her um, theatrical film debut. She was married to Carpenter at the time, and the role was written with her in mind. She based her radio voice on Alison Steele, a 1960s DJ who broadcast under the alias of Nightbird, and of uh, particular interest to Melissa especially nerdy ones like myself, she reused this voice for Batman the Animated Series when she was playing Catwoman. Yeah, I remember watching this with my sister Sarah, occasional co-host, and you know, I cautioned her that Barbo's in this, and she uses her Catwoman voice, and she was not accustomed to hearing that coming out of a human woman's mouth. <laughs> also, she was like, hey, she's hot. She could have just been Catwoman. If only. 
I can only ever picture as Billy from Creepshow. Yeah, there are a lot of people in this film who also show up in Creepshow the next year. <laughs> Barbo is one of them, and... It's an interesting part for her because while she's often in the action and is literally commenting on the scenes because she's a radio DJ who's trying to warn and help the townspeople along their way, she doesn't interact with anybody except for one brief scene with her son. Not directly. There's a couple of phone calls. That's about it. Oh, you're right. She's not really playing off of anyone. Yeah, she's on her own, which, once again, more credit to her. Alright, uh, closest thing we have to a hero in this film is Tom Atkins as Nick Castle. This role was offered to Kurt Russell, but, uh, he wasn't available. Although he would later show up in a number of other Carpenter films. Atkins was a friend of Barbeau, she recommended him to, uh, Carpenter. And the character is named Nick Castle, which, if you are a follower of Carpenter's career, you already know he played The Shape or Michael Myers in Halloween. Uh, Carpenter likes to have little nods and character names and things throughout. More on that in a bit. Alright, the next most prominent character in this would be Jamie Lee Curtis, who plays Elizabeth. This happened more out of a sense of, I don't want to say pity, but uh, after Halloween, Jamie Lee Curtis got typecast as Laurie Strode and was struggling to find work. She had uh, appeared in like a minor guest spot in The Love Boat, and that was it. And Carpenter knew that she was in dire straits, so he just offered her the part just to give her something to do. And apparently it worked, because she got an offer for prom night when this film was in post-production. And uh, Curtis hasn't been hurting for work since. I haven't actually seen Prime Night before. Oh, it's, um, it's a cheesy 80s slasher. You'd probably be into it. On the list. <laughs> As I mentioned in the Halloween episode with Sylvan, Curtis has way more charisma than just about every other actor in Halloween, and I think that sort of applies to this. She's not playing a particularly big role, but I do think that she reacts well. She uses her uh, Scream Queen histrionics to, to good effect, and no character in here is particularly fleshed out. This movie strained mightily to get to 90 minutes, but she does have little, like, elements of her character that make you get a little invested. She's hitchhiking, she's kind of driftless, she shows Nick her sketchbook after she has sex with him. And she won't accept money for her art. So I do have to say, if we're going to go for charisma, old man at the beginning telling the ghost story, super charismatic. <laughs> yeah, you're an easy mark for characters like that. <laughs> yeah, I thought, uh, even being the naysayer of this episode, I thought, uh, for points I'm going to give, is Jamie Lee Curtis, and this is her in all of her movies, actually talked like a real person talked. She's very good at delivering dialogue and making it sound like not acting. The script is not very naturalistic in any case whatsoever, but she has a sort of casual delivery under her hand that it does infuse the, the, the role with life. Like, it mattered to me if she died in this movie. Yeah, Aww, that's nice. <laughs> yeah I'm really damning this with faint praise. <laughs> Alright, speaking of people who showed up in Creep Show, Hal Holbrook as Father Malone. <laughs> I asked Pete if he plays a drunk idiot and everything, and you're like, yes. As far as I've seen. Christopher Lee was approached for this character, but he was also unavailable. Uh, that would have been different. Why don't we live in that universe? <laughs> <laughs> why didn't they take me? Because you could fucking take them. <laughs> <laughs> they aren't gonna fuck with Dracula. Holbrook isn't in this film for very much, but he's in, like, the two most memorable scenes. The part in the beginning where he dumps all the exposition about the town being cursed because of its seedy origins. And then the bit at the end where he's just, like, lugging that golden cross out there and he's hugging it and he's thinking, Wow, this is a bad idea for my drunk ass to carry this gold cross out here. Gold is heavy. <laughs> 
Why didn't I know that gold was heavy? I love what he's walking to. He's kind of like nuzzling it. He's like, I can understand why they stole this. <laughs> All right, then we have Janet Lee as Kathy Williams. If you have any understanding of film history or if you're in even a little bit of a horror movie buff, I don't have to tell you that Janet Lee is Jamie Lee Curtis's mom. She has appeared alongside Jamie Lee Curtis in a couple of films. This is the only one I can think of where she isn't actually playing her mother. And she still seems like such a mommy type, even in the movie. Well, uh, H2O, she also isn't her mom, but she basically is her mom. One other thing I I read about this is that there's this one scene where Kathy is, you know, organizing the centennial, but has just learned that her husband is dead, and she kind of breaks down when she's talking about him, and that scene required 14 different takes, but Lee was able to summon real tears for every single take because she's a goddamn professional. Everybody else who talked about it, including Deborah Hill and John Carpenter on the commentary, were just like, yeah, Janet Lee was the actor's actor on the set, Everyone else has basically followed her lead. How intimidating to be, like, up against that, and that's your mom. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, not to mention her dad. But, uh, you know, I think Jamie Lee Curtis ultimately acquitted herself. Mm -hmm. Next person I want to bring up is Ron Botton, who plays Captain Blake, the lead ghost. He was just a set dresser, some, like, random guy on set, and he asked Carpenter if he could play the lead ghost. Carpenter asked him to stand up. He figured, like, the next thing would be like, get off my set, you crass, presumptuous man. But it was mostly because Carpenter wanted to see how tall he was. <laughs> and he was like, oh, you're 6'5". Yeah, that's fine. Put on these robes and carry this hook around. <laughs> what about the, like, car deflector eyes? I'm assuming that was cheap rotoscope, the same way that glowing fog was done. I'm not entirely sure how that was done, but uh, rotoscoping was probably the most cost-effective way to do that in 1980, so that's probably it. I was so waiting for you to be like, bingo chips. They <laughs> <laughs> just had them close their eyes and squint a little bit. Now, that does have that 80s movie glow to it. <laughs> it's so also, Carpenter himself has a very minor cameo as Father Malone's assistant. He gets, like, two lines, and Carpenter was so disgusted with his performance of those two lines, and he never gave himself a Hitchcock cameo ever again. Do, do, do they ever, like, with the scene cut out, like, do they explain why he doesn't get paid? Did he just drink the money? <laughs> Father Malone's main character traits are guilty and drunk, so, yeah, probably. <laughs> taken uh, in his ancestor's shoes and he melted it down into smaller crosses. Much easier to carry. And next thing I wanted to bring up was the music for this film. Stevie at her lighthouse is a jazz DJ, mostly playing like light 70s jazz, just on the cusp of it evolving into smooth jazz. But there's some like Glenn Miller sounding stuff there. I tried to find out like what specific songs they use, but I couldn't find any reputable source that informed me. Uh, the main reason that Stevie is this jazz DJ is because that music was cheaper to license than the than rock art. R&B or pop music. Makes sense. As with most of his preceding films and a number of ones to follow, the score was quickly composed by Carpenter on a synthesizer over the course of a couple of days. You mean the frog horns? Only a couple of days. <laughs> the score has a lot of Carpenterisms. There's minor key piano and synthesizer loops that are just continuously oscillating uh, over and over again. And already pointed out by my co-host, the bomb, bomb. Bomb and bing, 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 bing. 
I, I always thought it was like dueling synthesizers because it sounds like one is like talking back to the other. <laughs> Even though Carpenter is largely retired from film right now and focuses on making music with, you know, his kids and grandkids, uh, he is still downplays his own abilities as a musician. He always talks about how his soundtracks are mostly just done for the purposes of efficiency and cost because it's a lot quicker and cheaper than hiring a composer or an orchestra. And since most of his films were done very low budget, that was the best way to go about it. That being said, Carpenter has on occasion said that he considers The Fog to be one of his best film scores, and it's fairly influential. When you talk about a number of electronica composers, especially the Stranger Things people, they will bring up The Fog score as the one that they borrow from the most liberally. Ah, see? <laughs> I don't have anything bad to say about the score. It's, it's Carpenter. Score works. <laughs> Or the reception of this film. It's a low-budget horror movie from the 80s, so it got mixed reviews. That means there's good ones in there, Pete. There are good ones in there. The critic I seem to cite the most often is Roger Ebert, and this one, he was fairly ambivalent. He considered The Fog to be a minor gem at best, although he does say that it's a highlight of Carpenter's craft. He's under the impression that a lesser director of this film would have been much worse. Uh, reappraisals of The Fog are much more positive. Most horror movie buffs love this one and consider it one of Carpenter's more underrated gems. Stop staring at me. <laughs> yeah, Pete, you're not allowed to dislike The Fog. <laughs> There's a lot of movies I'm supposed to not dislike, but I do. <laughs> the film was a success. The reshoots nudged its budget up to $1.1 million, and about three times that budget was used to promote that film. Traditional ways of TV, radio spots, newspaper ads, that sort of thing. However, select theaters also had fog machines installed to blare fog out while audiences were watching the film. So the audiences were suddenly cold and damp. <laughs> yeah, it was a big hit. <laughs> I feel like you can't get away with that today because it's probably a fire hazard when you can't see the fire exits. <laughs> the film had a return of $21.3 million, which is healthy profit considering that they spent $4 million to make and market the thing. Carpenter overall has mixed feelings about the film. He is annoyed at the low production values. He believes the reshoots are very glaring and obvious. I had a hard time separating the reshot footage from the original stuff. Maybe he's just too close to it. On the DVD commentary track, both Carpenter and Hill expressed that their reach didn't quite meet up with their grasp, and they were open to having a remake of the film <laughs> happen down the road, <laughs> which ended up being nastily prophetic. <laughs> well, it was a slasher remake made in the early 2000s, so... You were getting to the remake. <laughs> Throughout the 1990s, Carpenter repeatedly discussed making an anthology TV series based upon The Fog. Oh, that would have been so good! There's something along the lines of assuming, like, Friday the 13th, the series, or Tales from the Dark Side. But his concept was that The Fog would roll throughout the country, sparking supernatural horror wherever it went. And as they went along, it would gradually link back to the events of the original film. Yeah, but it never went anywhere. And ultimately, The Fog got a remake in 2005. Ugh. It was directed by Rupert Wainwright, but Carpenter and Hill have producer credits, so hopefully they made a little money off this. It starred Tom Welling, Selma Blair, and Maggie Grace. It got a very poor reception. Because it was very poor. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mentioned this with Cheryl earlier. A number of Carpenter films have gotten remakes, including The Thing, which itself was a remake. And the best one is the Rob Zombie Halloween. Hell yes. One thing you said about the remake that you didn't like when the little, the little boy like finds the driftwood, it's because he's alienated from his friends or something. That's some kind of subplot. Yeah, he's just, instead of him like, going out fishing, he's just the weird kid that just hangs out on the beach alone because he doesn't have any friends. That can't be the only reason you dislike The Fog. I mean, I've never seen it. My assumption is that it's one of those slasher movies that have lots of, like, Michael Bay rapid cutting, and there's weird green lighting everywhere for no reason, and whenever somebody dies, there's, like, this distractedly loud crunch noise. Yeah, it's very (laughs) dumb. It's Like, I tried to block it out, honestly, so I can't remember much. But I dislike both versions, but for completely different reasons. The remake (laughs) is very much every character's that early 2000s too edgy too cool for school attitude so like when they die you're rooting for the ghost yeah that was a big reason there's no there's barely any likability in the cast of the the remake i mean i have liked plenty of horror movies where i'm rooting for the monster but (laughs) um what does the table think about i just thought this was the most interesting topic talking point for the remake selma blair taking over for adrian barbeau what's the comparison there how do we feel I mean, I want to like Selma Blair, but I can't remember the last thing she was in that I liked. Uh, I liked her in Mom and Dad, even though I didn't like that movie. Yeah, I usually don't hate her in the stuff that she's in. I seem to remember her being okay in the remake of The Fog, but like I said, I try to block the movie itself out, so I don't know. I mean, the whole movie was just eh. Like, there wasn't anything remarkable about it. Like, I couldn't say that, like, one actor or actress, like, saved that movie for me. Like, there was there was nothing about that movie that I was into. Well, they had nice shots of boats. Yeah. This movie also had nice shots of boats, though. <laughs> Now, Pete, you are repeatedly not a fan of this, and while we were watching it, you had issues with its pace. The movie's an hour and a half long, correct? Yeah, it's about 90 minutes. Yeah, felt like four. Just nothing happening for long stretches. (laughs) It is a slow burn. For something that is 90 minutes long, it is paced very deliberately. Yeah. (laughs) Cheryl's making faces, but that doesn't seem to have a rejoinder. All I really had was, like, that candlelight vigil went by in, like, a second, so. <laughs> Yeah, but we got to watch panning shots of an empty town for about 20 minutes of the runtime. It, it, it wasn't even a... Coming. It wasn't even a vigil. Their idea of like a centennial celebration was to light candles and then walk by a tiny statue. It was super convenient because they all lost power and they all had candles. <laughs> they didn't get lost. Also, I'm not sure how California's political structure is arranged, but in our state, if it's a town, you don't have a mayor. You have a town selectman who is appointed by the governor. And it wasn't even like, the mayor could have been so much more. They could have been running around going like, Antonio Bay means friendship. You yeah. know, like we didn't even get that character. I knew yeah, that... you were going to go for jobs. I knew it. I could feel it. Throughout the whole running time, you're expecting like some skeptical police officer or some kind of official town person being like, there aren't any ghosts. What are you talking about? But to the town's credit, when the murder ghosts start showing up, they immediately start taking it very seriously. Now that you mention it, why did we have that scene where the sheriff desperately runs to a phone and then we never see him again? I think that was just to demonstrate that the fog is causing the phone lines to cut the short out. She could have called anybody. (laughs) It would make sense for her to try to get to the regional authority figure. 
Next up, themes. I had to dig a little bit to find thematic undercurrent for this film to delve into. Uh, some of these are a bit of a reach, but the first one I think is worth talking about. Uh, historical revisionism. Mm-hmm. Antonio Bay is literally celebrating a whitewashed version of its centennial where the ugly reality of its founding crashes the party. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of instances in history in general, especially American history, where we just sort of gloss over inconvenient truths that jive with the mythos that we build around ourselves. But that never quite works out in the long term because information doesn't want to remain hidden, especially if it's salacious. People are naturally intrigued by dirty little secrets, especially if they think there's a cover-up. Like, if somebody posted something about the horrible truth about the hometown you grew up in, I want to know about that. Yeah, I would have already opened that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, if there are, like, horrible murders that started the town that I grew up in, that's immediately something I want to know. And I don't think I'm unique in that. There are definitely people who come along and saying, like, I don't think we should be focusing on that. We should be focusing on the exceptionalism of our culture. But when you're doing that, it's no longer history. It's propaganda and history drag. And once again, if you try to cover it up, that just makes certain people want to find out about it more. John Carpenter made The Fog after reading about a grisly historical event surrounding an idyllic town in California. Do you want John Carpenter to make a horror movie about your town? Yes. Yes, I do. (laughs) Yes, I do too. But certain people don't. And they're the ones who are trying to hide the naughty bits from us. Yeah, but like on the other hand, the only other thing you can brag about our hometown about is they're really big onions. There you go, that's it. Woo! Onions grown from blood. Yeah, we have to do the haunted insane asylum, the H.P. Lovecraft-based Arkham upon. And big onions. Oh, <laughs> uh, and also some of the earliest lobotomies in America were performed in our hometown, so we got that. Oh, and a lot of, a lot of shoes, a lot of cobblers. Yeah, it's mostly a Beverly thing, but there's some spillover. Beverly's right next door. All right, another thing, which is a a bit more of a reach, but religious hypocrisy, which is the catnip of many a horror film, and uh, has seeped into this one as well. Really, the alcoholic priest hugging the giant gold cross for a good chunk of his screen time? And being just the epitome of guilt for the entire movie. Uh, I wonder if he was Catholic. (laughs) No, he he had a grandpa... I mean, what, was he a priest? I he was a minister. I don't know. Yeah, no, but a... he has the collar. I don't know these rules. <laughs> he has the collar. I think he's a minister because he doesn't have the dress. And once again, he has a grandfather who was a priest as well. Yeah. You can only go so far back in the Catholic, like, you go pretty far back in the Catholic Church to get that. On the other hand, it is implied that his communion cups have real booze in them. So maybe he's Anglican, but they call him Father. Yeah, it's a weird coastal town. Maybe they have their own religion. One thing I just want to say is that a cross of plundered gold is arguably less subtle than the zombies wandering around a shopping mall in Dawn of the Dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that whole scene is just using God to duck responsibility for one's actions and using God to rationalize atrocities. At the very, very beginning, Father Malone is reading his grandfather's diary and he's like, well, that gold we stole from the lepers that we murdered is going to be used to found the township and build the church and churches are for God, so, you know. <laughs> they built it into the wall and literally did build the church. <laughs> 
it was just such a funny reading too when he's at the diary and he's just like as much as it makes my heart swell to help these poor people i'm repulsed by them and i don't want them existing it's like damn dude like he wanted them to exist on an island yeah there's it was a big nimby thing like i believe in helping the homeless but over there no further Uh, and the last thing I wanted to bring up in my themes was just the use of references. Uh, Carpenter films have a lot of inside baseball in general. This one is no exception. It opens with an Edgar Allan Poe quote. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft is referenced. One of the landmarks surrounding the bay is known as Arkham Reef. Samuel Taylor Coleridge is paraphrased on the haunted tape the scene. EC Comics are brought up. TV's last plea to the audience is a thinly veiled reference to the the original thing which carpenter would remake a couple of years down the road the old man who tells the campfire stories of the kid at the beginning is named after uh, weird fiction pulp writer arthur macon the coroner is named after vincent price's character in the abominable dr fives <laughs> I think a lot of that was just done for Carpenter just keeping himself happy, but it's also for the audience because these little inside jokes and Easter eggs give horror buffs an excuse to examine the film really closely. And when you do that, it does make you get closer to the material. And it's the kind of, uh, you're one of us, you're in the club, you know the secret handshake deal. It works on me. And sometimes it works on Pete, but not this time. Not this time. (laughs) Uh, that's the full extent of my notes. Is there anything that either of you would like to note about the fog before we sign off? Um, I have a demand. Okay, what is your demand? I want my husband to do his ghost pirate voice. What do you want me to say? The fog's the best movie ever! Wow. Yeah. Arr, the fog is the best movie ever made! I, I like your 1940s race caller voice a little better. If I ever do another Star Wars movie, I'm just going to have you read the prologue in it. <laughs> War is broken out across the galaxy. Obi-Wan Kenobi rushes to the rescue. <laughs> Teehee. <laughs> okay, and with that, another episode in the can. Join us next time. Oh, shoot, I should have just say hashtag beats and There's still time. In what voice? Your uh, dealer's choice. What? Thank you. I don't know what to do that, what it would be funniest in. Do it in the pirate voice. Our hashtag beef did nothing wrong. Hooray.